Okay, so we are breaking from our Hebrews sermon series this week, um, as we did last week, but for a very different reason. You can turn to First uh, Peter 2, that's where I'll be going today. But um, last week, we broke from our sermon series because we had a matter of church discipline that made it needful for me to address that subject in a sermon. I talked about admonishing one another in the Lord. This week, it is because God has blessed the Poulin family and therefore our whole congregation as well with the birth of Verity Geneva Poulin. And so we're very thankful for that and we're anticipating some other babies that are due to come before too long. So several other baptisms, Lord willing, in the near future. And that prompts me to preach about the blessing of being reckoned as one of God's people, which is something that is brought before us every time we have a baptism of either an adult or a child. As most of you know, God has told us that he is God, as I mentioned to you in the scripture readings, both to us and to our children while they are yet children. He made that clear by giving, as we read about, by giving little boys the sign of circumcision, a sign of his covenant, along with the promise to be their God when they were eight days old. We read about that, and then we also read in Genesis 2.38, where apostolic baptism after the resurrection was first practiced, and Peter did declare that the promise is to you and to your children. If it had not already been clearly established from the Old Testament that God was God not only to us and also to our children, then Peter might have needed to explain more about what he meant. But in the context, it's very, very clear that God reckons children, even while they're yet children or infants, as his people. And of course, we read um, Mark 10, 13 through 16, where Jesus talks about the kingdom belonging to them. Luke tells us that some of these children, in his account, were even infants. He uses the word for an infant. And we see that some of them Jesus took up in his arms. They were blessed by Jesus before they could consciously repent of their sins or believe or in that way receive the blessing. In a way, Jesus says they receive it better than we do because we put up all kinds of resistance. And these little ones don't put up that resistance. They come, they, they receive. So with baptism, whether as an adult or a child, we're reminded of our identity as those who are God's people in Christ. There's also another reason that I want to do a special sermon on this topic. The juxtaposition of the events that of this week and last week, church discipline last week, and a baptism of a covenant child this week, illustrates something of what has been going on in our congregation in the last little while. We see God's hand of blessing, and we see his hand of disfavor at the same time. And it's an interesting time in the life of our congregation. His displeasure is seen in that we continue to have a number of people with, with chronic illnesses. And worse than that, several covenant children who have turned away from the faith. And we had also a failed effort that was discouraging to us in trying to establish 
another congregation in Glenholm. There are also folks among us who are struggling with their walk with God, who are dried up in their walk with God, maybe have been struggling for a long time, or those that have doubts or whose heart is discouraged or struggling with various things. But at the very same time, God's blessing has been seen among us in receiving quite a few new members who are zealous for the Lord, giving us a number of babies after a time when there were some that were barren and could not conceive that were able to do so or who had miscarriages and things. And we're very, very thankful for that. Also in rejuvenating a number of folks who are experiencing God's grace in fresh ways, who are dealing with things in their life, who are becoming invigorated for for Jesus Christ and rejuvenated in their walk with Him, with a freshness in their service to Him, moving forward in the Lord. And we have men among us that are emerging to be future leaders that are diligently studying God's Word and growing in their understanding and their their, um, ministry gifts and such. And uh, so there are wonderful things happening among us At the same time, there are some very difficult things that are happening. And so today, I want to remind you that we and our children are God's people. And I want to talk to you about what that means. And then in light of that, I want to renew our vision of what we need to be as a congregation of God's people in Halifax. Back over the years, there's been times when I've preached on that topic, what we need to be. It's a congregation, you know, here, God has placed us in His providence at this time, in this place. What do we need to be? What are we seeking to be as a congregation? We need to be clear about that. We don't want to be fuzzy about, about what we are to do as His people. So um, I want to remind you of these things. Um, our children are God's people. We're going to talk about what that means, and then we're going to seek to renew our vision and our focus of what we want to be. Our scripture reading is 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12. This is God's holy and infallible word. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. 
Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Amen. What powerful, powerful words and encouraging words these are to us as God's people. Our identity is that we are God's redeemed people. That is who we are in Jesus Christ. Jump down in our passage to verse 9 and 10, and let's begin there. The core of what we are. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This is, this is marvelous, marvelous words. These are marvelous words. This tells us who we are, and it is quite encouraging. It tells us that we are, first of all, a chosen generation. God has chosen us out of this fallen world, not because of any merit of our own, but of His free grace and mercy. He has chosen us to be His people, to come before Him. He has brought His gospel to us calling us and transforming us so that we heard that gospel, so that we saw that we were sinners and we repented and we turned to Him to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior, the only one who could save those who are cut off from God by sin. This gives us a unique calling and mission because we belong to God in this world and a reason for deep joy. Because we who were cut off are now chosen and brought into the fold. It tells us also this passage that we are a royal priesthood. You could use the phrase, the paraphrase that, a kingdom of priests. It is a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. That means that we are appointed to offer sacrifices to God. That's what priests do. They offer sacrifices. The sacrifices we offer to Him are not the blood of bulls and goats. They're the sacrifices that were always meant to be offered by God's people, even if they had no sin. Praise, Hebrews 13, 15. It says, in light of what Christ has done, therefore by Him, by Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. We are made to be worshipers. And then obedience, Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, your whole life, you see, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then uh, that's obedient service there. And then service to one another, Hebrews 13, 16. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So there is praise, obedience, and service. We are a royal priesthood, a a kingdom of priests who are able to offer sacrifices that are pleasing to God. We could not please God, and now we can. And that we do please God, it tells us in the next phrase that we are a holy nation. That means that we and our offerings are acceptable to God. 
God has made that possible. That what you do when you give someone a cup of cold water or anything that you do in His name is pleasing in His sight. We and our children are not defiled or unclean, but we are holy. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that our children would be unclean if we were not God's people. But if one parent is a believer, then their children are also with them in holiness, offering sacrifices acceptable to God. This is only possible because of Jesus who cleanses us from our sin. Then it tells us that we are his own special people. We were delighted when we studied the Song of Solomon with those words that are repeated several times, words of the, similar to this, that I am his and he is mine. What does that mean? To belong to God, to be his people. This is a marvelous thing. He claims us as his own precious possession that he loves, that he provides for, that he takes care of, that he defends. We are his people, his chosen precious possession. He cherishes us. We have been brought back to God where we belong, to have him as our God and to be his people. People don't belong anywhere else. That's where human beings belong. This is the essence of his covenant promise to us from Genesis to Revelation. Over and over again, he says, I am your God and you are my people. At the very end, when the tabernacle of God is with man and we are united to him forever in glory, that is the thing that is declared. I am your God and you are my people. Over and over, it's expressed in different ways, the same promise. As his people, we are now those who proclaim his praises. This is what it says. This is what we were created to do in the first place. Because God is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And we are not fulfilling our function as human beings if we are not praising him. We live for his glory. We serve him. We give ourselves to him. That's what we were made to do. And we are restless and miserable and undone until we're restored to him as our God. Our lives are misspent wasted and completely out of whack and to put it plainly our lives are obnoxious and sinful until we are reconciled to God. Peter describes the radical change as that of going from darkness to light. You see it there in verses 9 and 10. Indeed before having God as our God we were wandering around in darkness willfully ignorant of our God and his calling and his ways having no purpose and no idea of what we ought to do, or where we were going, or why we were doing it, or where we would end up. We were missing everything that is good, because, and, and we didn't even know. We couldn't even see it. We were like a person driving at a furious speed, blindfolded. We have no idea what we're headed for, what's going to become of us. We were in darkness, because we had suppressed the light in our sin. And He has caused the light to shine in our heart, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Peter further describes the change as becoming a people who are not a people. We became a people who are not a people. Until we were God's people, we were no people at all. We may have had a family and a nationality, perhaps a culture, but we were missing out on what being people is all about. We were made to live not in selfish isolation from God, 
but in conformity to him as a pattern. That's what people are. They are the image of God. And we're not a people if we're not living in conformity to his image. We're his image constitutionally, whether we want to be or acknowledge it or not. But we're a, a perverted, distorted, twisted image, like a, like a picture, you know, of something. You can have a, a good picture or you can have a bad picture. You're still a picture, still a picture of God, whether you want to be or not. It's a very bad one until the Lord came to us and called us and made us a people. Now we are people who represent God. And living in dependence on Him for everything is part of what we do as His people. We, we live in uh, dependence for our daily bread and also for our salvation and obedience. Peter still further describes the change as being those who had not obtained mercy to those who have obtained mercy. God's way is to show mercy to all of his creatures because God is love. But when those creatures have rebelled against him and rejected him, then they're cut off from his mercy and brought under judgment. He is not in the business of helping people and furthering them in their rebellion. He doesn't make them stronger and bless them and enrich them so that they can rebel further. Now, he does that sometimes for a time, but only to prepare them for judgment. But when he shows mercy, then he comes and delivers us. What he does, does instead then is to extend mercy to those who he has chosen so that they're delivered from their rebellion and they're reconciled to him. Those for whom he does that are his people and they are a people who continually receive mercy from God. He has pardoned our sin in Christ and he continues to pardon it. That is a great mercy. We don't deserve that. He gives us all good things and will bless us forever. Those are his common mercies that he bestows and pours out on us. So much mercy for a people who had not, prior to that, obtained mercy. We sang about places like Babylon and Assyria that were isolated from God and had not received the mercy of God that would receive mercy. And we see today that there are people from all nations that have come to him. So how radically... Our identity has been changed from darkness to light, from being no people to being the people of God, from having no mercy to obtaining mercy. Think about how radical those changes are. Jesus calls it a new birth as far as what happens to us. It is regeneration. It is conversion. It is baptism by the Holy Spirit. It is having God's law written in our hearts. It is being made alive from the dead so that now we're directed toward God, being raised with Christ, becoming a new creation in Christ, being delivered from bondage and death and, and Satan to, and brought to God. Peter describes the things that, are, that characterize those who are God's people indeed. Now, when I say God's people indeed, what I mean by that, I'm using it the same way that Jesus did when in John 8, there were people that saw some of his miracles and they couldn't deny those miracles and they wanted to be his disciples. And they came and they believed in him. They said, you, you are the one who came from heaven and you're doing miracles and we, we, we believe you. We're going we're to follow you. We want to go with you. And Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. These people weren't disciples indeed. They were disciples, but they weren't truly disciples. That's what he means. And there are many people that are disciples or that are baptized or that are Christians. They're not Christians indeed. And so this is what Peter is distinguishing here. 
to what it is to be a uh, God's people indeed. Peter gives us three characteristics of those who are truly God's people or God's people indeed. Let's look at them. The first characteristic of God's people, so now we're going back up in the passage, back to the beginning. We started with that core thing of our identity, and now we're looking to see what are the characteristics of those who have this identity. The first characteristic of God's people is that they yearn to feed on God's word the way a baby yearns for milk. I don't mean that they just study and read the word and listen earnestly to the word preached. They do that. But that is not at all all that they do. They yearn for the word as those who are seeking nourishment from it, which is very different than just seeking to have information or wanting to curiously study about things. They love God's word and they study God's word because they want to take it into their lives to satisfy their hunger, their spiritual hunger and their yearning for God. They, it, what, they want to know what it says about God and about God's work, especially His saving work, and about how to live for Him. So they're not looking for mere information, but they're looking for nourishment that they might live and believe as God's people in the light of His revelation. They want to be shaped by the truth. Peter appeals to this appetite in 2, 1 through 3. It says, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You see, you look for the word to transform your life. You desperately want it in your life. That's what Jesus meant when he talked about that. My word abiding in you. It's a living, abiding, a transforming word. It, it causes you to go from maliciousness and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking to something very different, to godliness. I remember how much I changed when I became a believer in university with regard to thirst for the word. I thirsted for God's word in a way that I had never known when I was 20 years old, and I'd never known before that. I'd been exposed to the Bible. I went to church all my life. But um, I knew now that this was God's word and that it would transform my life to believe it, to receive it, and to live it. I could no longer ignore the parts that I didn't like. I had to receive it all. I remember a conversation I had a few years ago with the daughter of a man that was among us for a while in his old age. And uh, we had his funeral here, and his daughters were not believers. And I ran into one of his daughters not long ago in a parking lot, and she told me that it was jubilation that she was a, had become a Christian. And I was very excited about that. She had been baptized, and I began to talk to her about it. And then my heart sank because she told me that, you see, I don't look at the Bible the same way that a lot of Christians do because I just take the parts that I like. And uh, I take the positive parts, but I don't accept any of the negative parts in the New Testament. And that was her kind of Christianity. And my heart sank because she does not know the living God. She is not looking at the word to, to transform her. She's setting herself over the word and taking it as she pleases. She was not a Christian at all. She does not know God as her God. She is not a disciple indeed. 
She did not have the marks of one receiving the word like a babe, thirsting and hungry. Give me this nourishment. Nourish me with this. Before you are converted, you can hear a command from God or you can hear something to believe about him. But since he's not really your God, you can take it or leave it. Oh, I don't agree with that. Oh, that one's okay. Eh, not that one. You know, if, if he calls you together for worship on the Lord's Day with his saints, and you, you take it, you know, it's a piece of advice, but it's not God Almighty speaking to you. You might or you might not. That doesn't really matter. If he calls you to abstain from fleshly lust, you, you're eager if you have this childlike disposition wanting to be nourished, you're eager to know what that means. Abstain from fleshly lust. What do I need to do? What a lust do I need to abstain from? Because you now know the one who has spoken that he is God. It's, it, you, it's his voice. It's not just some kind of like words that somebody wrote down about some idea or something. This is God. And you receive it as God's word. If he says, don't murder. Okay, people will say, oh yeah, sure. That's good. Yeah, don't murder. But if you know it is God's word, what do you do? You take it and you, and you look at it and you say, I, I didn't love my brother. I had a, I had a, a, I'm in the, the category of murder here. And you're humbled by that. And you cry out to God and you say, change me. Take away this malice, you see, that is in me. And this, this bitterness that is in me. And that becomes an issue to you because you heard from God. If you don't hear it from God, then, oh yeah, I don't think we should murder people and it's all superficial. You don't, it doesn't ever get down to the root. See, it's communion with God that we're talking about. There's, if, if there's no hunger in you to be nourished up in God's word, to feed upon God's word and receive it, then it's a mark that you really do not know the Lord indeed. You're not a disciple indeed. The second characteristic of God's people is that they come to Jesus as a living stone. And in doing so, they become living stones. Because we're dead without him. We're spiritually dead. What I was just talking about, the word doesn't have anything, doesn't reach us. We don't know God. We're, we're far away from him. But you see, when we're, we, we need to be alive. And how do we get alive? How did we get alive? Because we came to Jesus as a living stone. This is beautiful here. Look at verse 4 and 5. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is this? It's temple talk. It speaks of us with Jesus, us together with Jesus as a temple. When we are with Jesus, we are a temple. And what is this temple? Peter is referring to Jesus and his church as a living temple. It's not a temple made of dead things like wood and stone. So you see, that's a picture. The wood and stone temple is a picture of the living temple that's made of living stones of living people. Of Jesus, the living stone, and his people with him who offer sacrifices that are what? Pleasing to God. That's what we become in Christ. The sacrifices in view are the ones that we talked about before. The sacrifice of praise and worship to God. The sacrifice of obedience, of giving our lives into the service of God. And the sacrifice of service. 
where we are serving our neighbor, where we're, we're seeking to be a blessing to others. Those who do not live in this way are not part of this living temple. They're not alive, but they are still dead in their sins. Jesus is alive because he's alive to God. And you see, that's the only way to be alive. You're dead if you're not alive to God. So we were all dead in our sins until we came to Christ to be made alive. And then we're alive to God. Jesus came in our flesh and God was his God. He was not a dead stone, but a living stone. So Jesus came to establish this true temple or true tabernacle that is not made with hands. We come to him as those who are dead, that through him we might be living stones. When you're truly part of this temple, you recognize that without Jesus and his saving work, you can't offer acceptable sacrifices to God. You can't do anything. You can't hear from God. You can't serve God. You're alienated from God. You're cut off from him. He has nothing to do with you. That's the reason that you come to Jesus when you're born again. You come to him as a living stone in order that you might be built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through him, through Jesus Christ. So the evidence that you're alive, that you're spiritually alive, alive to God, is that you have come to Jesus to be an acceptable living temple to God. You're assured in verse 6 that if you come to Jesus, you will not be put to shame, or you could translate it, you will not be disappointed, either now when you come, have come to him, or in the future when you stand before him on the day of judgment. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, verse 6 says, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. He is the stone that God approves of and that God chose, the living stone, and he is the stone that is precious to God and to us, precious and alive. If you come to him, you will be precious to God and alive to God because of him. So as a result of this, if you're born again, you have a radically different assessment of Jesus Christ. In other words, you think a completely different way about Jesus than what you think of him if you are not his own. Okay, so to those who are still dead in their sin, Jesus is a stone that they reject. They don't find him precious at all. They find him actually offensive. He offends them. It offends them that he is accepted and that they are not. Why didn't God just accept me? Why does he, why does he accept him? They envy him and they want to bring him down. They reject him. Who is he to be accepted, they say, when I am rejected? When you're born again, your assessment completely changes. Okay? When you think, Jesus is pre- you think Jesus is precious, the way the Father does, and the Father's right. Instead of envying him, you come to join with him. The radical contrast is described in verse 7 and 8. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, 
to which they also were appointed. They're, they're scandalized by Jesus. They're like, what is this? I'm offended by this. Like, what is this? Some guy dying because I'm a sinner and I need him to die in my place? What is this? He's not precious to them at all. Like, what are you saying? You're, this, this is offensive to me. If, if, if you were, just to use a kind of a simple illustration, if you're a craftsman and, you know, you're, you're doing some kind of trade or whatever, small town, Another guy moves to town, and he's a master craftsman, way, way better than anybody else. Well, you might have a choice here. You could envy him, and you could start talking badly about him and how he's no good and how he does you know, all, all this kind of stuff because you're envious. And, whoa, who does he think he is? And he starts getting all the business and everything. Or you can go and say, I want to go and sit at this guy's feet. I want to learn from him. And you go and join him. And now you're doing work in his name. His name is on all your work, not your name anymore. Oh, I don't like... No, you like that now because he's, he's brought you in where you can now do beautiful work like he does. He trains you, he, he shepherds you, he guides you, he works with you. You have the blessing now of, of coming to him. You go to work for him and do things in his name. In our case, it's not merely that Jesus is better than us. So the illustration fails at that point. It's not just that he's better than us. It is that our work and our whole lives are completely unacceptable to God while his life is precious and acceptable. That's what makes him so offensive to the natural man. And so he gives us his spirit. He begins to disciple us. He begins to work and to teach us to observe all things that He has commanded. He builds us up and strengthens us. He nourishes us with His Word. It becomes a living oracle that feeds us and transforms us. And we yearn to be like Him. He makes us fruitful. We, you see, come to Him as a, a ruined woman who is barren and unfruitful. And He takes us in as a husband and receives us into his house. He pays all of our debts, covers all that we have done, and then he begins to, to shape us in his house, and the barren woman becomes fruitful, and she begins to live for God. His, his father is, is the house of his father that he brings us into, and now we are pleasing in the sight of God who are outcasts and aliens before. This is what our gracious Lord Jesus does. We come under His name now, you see. He is the living stone and He is precious. We want to be in His name, not in our own name anymore. So you see that the church is made up of those who have God as our God through Jesus Christ, as their God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9 and 10 again. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So now, moving on to our next thing, in light of our identity in Christ, let's evaluate afresh what we need to be as a congregation at this time in Halifax, Nova Scotia. We need to consider this because we have new people among us and because we have perhaps lost our focus to some extent and we have not conveyed it to our children the way we should. So we began 26 years ago 
seeking to be a church with two characteristics, sound doctrine and ardent love. Came to the uh, Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, wanting to plant a church here in uh, the, the Canadian Presbytery. They uh, helped us. They, they uh, set up a provisional session to help to shape this, what we're doing here and this vision and to, to get things going here. So what are we looking at then? Sound doctrine with ardent love. That, was, that is the focus of what we are as a people. Sound doctrine is robust, biblical, apostolic, confessionally reformed belief and practice. Okay? We want to practice what the Lord calls us to practice in His Word. For example, biblical discipline. We don't want to be a church that doesn't do biblical discipline when it needs to be done because God has called us to do that. It's His Word. He said it. And you see, that's often not done in our day. Very often not done. Biblical apostolic worship. Simple praise to God in the New Testament manner with psalms and with, uh, with, without a lot of uh, instruments and things going on all around. Um, biblical church government. We want to have the government that God established for us in the New Testament. Biblical doctrine, including things that are sometimes not as well received. The Bible teaches, for example, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. And that we're, we come to God because of election. It teaches the doctrine of eternal punishment. I remember at that time, 26 years ago, that was a doctrine that was often, there were churches that were excitingly excited to deny that doctrine. They were openly denying it and setting forth that they did not believe in that doctrine. And you see, they're departing from the word of God as it has been given to us. The sovereignty of God, believing in the sovereignty of God, believing in biblical morality, including things like Sabbath keeping that are often rejected, gender roles, honoring parents, children honoring parents, sexual purity, ethics in business. We could go on and on with these things. We want to be sound in doctrine. We want to follow God's word. We saw that there were a few churches in Halifax that were upholding these things. We want to be rooted in the history of the church, not a pop-up church that says we're revolutionaries and we're doing something brand new. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to continue the apostolic church as it has gone through the ages in all different ages. We can find the, those who are biblically serving God according to the doctrines of the scripture. That is what we want to do. But there is something else that we also wanted to do equally as a church. We also wanted to hold to those things, all those truths I was just talking about, in a loving and gracious way. We saw that there seemed to always be a tendency for those who hold to these things to be harsh and unkind and unapproachable. Now, sometimes you are called that in the way that, say, the Apostle Paul would be or Moses or whoever or the prophets. You're, you're, you're labeled that even when it's not true. But the sad thing is that it is often true. That people can, who hold to these things can become defensive and they begin to be nasty about the way that they hold these things. 
We want to be a people who are also full of joy because that's something that God has called us to be. And grace of the Lord, filled with love and gratitude to him for what he has done with a tenderness and a humility before him and zeal to reach out to the lost and the needy, to be a church that welcomes unbelievers no matter what they have done or where they come from, that listens to them, that invites them into our homes to minister to them and to care for them. We want to zealously love one another, to be there for each other, to help the one that is in need, to help out and provide for the weak, to bear along with those who are maybe difficult to get along with. We want to lovingly help our brothers and sisters in need and to sacrifice for each other. We want to be able to say hard things to each other when they need to be said, but in a gracious and loving way. Most of all, we want to be filled with love for Jesus Christ, our Savior and our husband, for God our Father and for the Holy Spirit, and to serve Him, not in cold resolution, but in grateful, heartfelt love and worshiping devotion. We noted at the time, and this is still true, that doing these, both of these things is impossible. That there is always a gravitation to one way or the other way. And that it is impossible to do both of these things apart from the working of God's Spirit. And that is what we must have and what we must pray for if we're going to be sound in biblical doctrine as it is given to us in the Word and have a loving and gracious disposition in the world that God has also called us to have. Those two things are what we're called to be and we cannot be that unless God's Spirit works. We had an interesting illustration of that early on in our church. There was a church that came to us and they said, oh, we see what you guys are doing. And uh, they, were, they were friendly. We were friendly toward them. And they said, uh, you know, you're going to be the Matthew 18 church. You guys do church discipline and that kind of thing. We don't do that at our church. We're the prodigal son church. We welcome the prodigal when he's come home. We're, we're the one that open our arms and we welcome him. And we, we had a meeting with their elders and, and talked to them about this. And they said, you know, both, both kinds of churches are needed here. And we said, we will not accept that. We are not trying to be the Matthew 18 church and not the prodigal son church. We want to be the prodigal son church and the Matthew 18 church because those are both what God has given us in his word. We have to discipline people when they rebel and we have to remove them from the church, but we also have to welcome the sinner no matter what he's done or where he's been when he repents and to open our arms and to receive him. We want to do both of those things. And it was interesting because we had an illustration from, for them at that very time as we were a new church. We had just had a treasurer in our church who embezzled something like $12,000 from us. And we found out about it. And we came to him, bringing discipline to him and calling him to repentance. And he repented. And he came before the whole church. He went to each person in the church and asked for forgiveness. And then he stood before the whole church publicly and asked for forgiveness. And we gladly forgave him and we, we, we killed the, the fatted calf. We, we had a feast for him to rejoice in his reception. So we had Matthew 18 and the welcome of the prodigal home in one event, one person. And that is a, a model of what we want to be as a church. 
So, how have we done? Over the years, the Lord has helped us to a certain extent. But we also, of course, have come short in many ways. And I believe that in the last little while, we have somewhat lost our focus. And that there had been a drifting and a coldness to some of these things, a lack of zeal for some of these things. And this is something that needs to be recovered. And it can only be recovered by God's grace. And I believe that a lot in our congregation are starting to wake up to this and realize that we need to, we need to repent. And we need God to come and visit us with power and grace in order that we may become what he has called us to be in this place at this time. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that we have some kind of a specific thing that we're called to apart from uh, God's whole word. But what I mean is when we look at God's word and what we're called to be, and when we look at our city and what is here and what churches are here and what needs there are here for the church to be, then this is This fits what we need to be here in this place. We need to be a church that has these characteristics together. Not one or the other, but both of these things. It's very rare to find that anywhere in our city. And we don't want it to be absent from us as a people. We want God, by His grace, to enable us to do this. We believe that, for example, over the last couple of years that we were not as ready with discipline as we should have been. We didn't, we didn't exercise discipline the way we should have in our church. We also see that there has been sometimes a lack of love for one another. There are many things, uh, Jesus and uh, his letters to the uh, churches in Revelation that we're going to be looking at in the evenings, in the afternoon, he talks about those different things with the churches. You didn't do well here. You did well here. This was good. And uh, we want to come back to him. We want to come back to a fullness of a walk with him at this time. So we need to repent and return to what we need to be as a congregation. What do you do? Consider what changes you need to make. Consider where you need to shore up in your walk with Christ, in your love for him and for others in your receiving of the truth and practicing of the truth, that you don't just say, yeah, whatever, and you don't do what his word says. No, you've got to be one who, who comes with, with, this, with this robust desire to, to be nourished by his word, to have all that he says, to be all that he's called us to be, and to go forth with, with truth and love. Truthing and love. That is the desire that you need to have, and you need to repent if that's not true of you. And you need to ask the Lord to help you. And you'll have to keep on asking him to help you because these things do not come easily or automatically. We have to fight the good fight of faith. We have to lay hold of eternal life. We have to persevere and press on to the end. So please stand and let's call on the name of the Lord. Our gracious, merciful, heavenly Father, how we praise you for your mercy to us. That you have called us, O Lord, that we are a chosen generation that we are a royal priesthood, that we are a holy nation, that we are a people that we're not a people. We are those who have received mercy that had not obtained mercy. These are marvelous things that are said about all who are God's true disciples, God's true people, disciples of Christ. It is truly by him that we have this identity. 
We are not a stone in the temple at all that offers any sacrifice to you apart from Jesus Christ. He is the stone, the living stone that offered a sacrifice for our sins and that offers the sacrifices of worship and praise, the sacrifice of obedience and service. He did that in a way that was pleasing to you. And we come to him as the Lord and master that we may be cleansed from our sin and that we may then serve you in your house forever and ever. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be very zealous for that. We pray that you would give us a true hunger for your word, not just to have the information of your word in our heads stored away somewhere, but to have the life that the word talks about in us, Lord, to have those things as a very part of us, the word abiding in us. We think about your word and how it works, that you said, let there be light, and then light appeared. When you say, put away malice, malice goes away. And we pray, Father, that your word would be that which truly does transform us, that is received by us, by your grace, that we would hold to our Lord Jesus Christ as, our, as the living stone by whom we are made living stones. And Father, that we would regard him as precious because you have declared that he is precious and he is precious. He is the one who stands above all others. There is none like him. He is the only Savior. He is the Son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. We praise you that he is now reigning at your right hand until he comes again and that he is bringing forth his kingdom, that he is governing this temple and he is shaping us and shepherding us and he will not stop until the work is done. Oh, Father, we thank you and we pray for us as individuals and as a congregation that we would be what you want us to be that we would have sound, robust, apostolic doctrine and practice coupled with genuine love and tenderness and care. And Father, that you would please work in us by your Spirit because we know that it is impossible for us to do this. But Lord, we want to do this. We want to do it by your grace. So here we are, Lord. We are presenting ourselves to you. Have mercy on us, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. Transform us. Lord, we're, we're going to see in a minute the sign of baptism. And we thank you for that sign. It's a sign that you cleanse your people. You cleanse them from the guilt of their sin so that they can be forgiven. And you also cleanse them from the power and presence of their sin so that they can be holy. And we pray, Lord, that this would be so, that we would be those who have this blessing and delight in this blessing and who go forward as your people, as your disciples. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Please receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.